Well, it's me again. Once again, good morning. Um, uh, you did, like I said, if you've never met me, you don't know, my name is Topher. Um, and let me just say, me and Jeremy have been joking that this is basically Youth Sunday because of how much you're having to deal with me up here on stage. So welcome to Youth Sunday, I guess. Um, but let me just say in all seriousness, this is an immense joy and an immense privilege and honor to be able to stand up here um, and to open God's word with you this morning. And so thank you, Jeremy. Thank you to our elders for allowing me this opportunity um, to stand up here. I do not take this lightly. Um, and this is an amazing privilege and honor. And I'm super excited, super excited of our passage and where we're heading this morning. Before we jump in, though, I want to say happy Father's Day um, to all the dads and the fathers in the room. Jeremy and I were also joking that this is my Father's Day gift to him because now I get to give him the day off. And so happy Father's Day, Jeremy. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. And I just want to say this, I'm extremely thankful. Um, and I've noticed this in just my short time being here, um, how much of a privilege it is to be part of a body and part of a people where there are so many just really good dads in our body and in our people that are really just living their lives, striving after Jesus, striving after God and leading and discipling their families to do the same. That is a privilege as a young man who is not a father, but who hopes to be one day, that is a privilege to be able to see, to be able to look up to, um, and to be able to be mentored by. And so happy Father's Day to the dads. I hope today can be a day, a restful day, um, where you can be celebrated, where you can be loved well by your families. And my encouragement to you is to press on. I, was, I came across this um, statistic this morning um, as I was scrolling on Twitter, because that's what I do. And... Um, it was a guy, and he was talking about Father's Day and the immense importance of fathers in their kids' lives. And it was a statistic that was done over the course of 35 years. They found that 68% of children who had a close relationship with their father grew up and continued to walk in the faith of their fathers. 68% of those children. And so my encouragement to you dads is what you do in the life of your families and the life of your kids is not missed and has an immense impact on the future of your children. So my encouragement is to press on. Press on even when you feel like it's not doing anything, um, that your, your um, leadership, that your pouring and discipling of your kids is, is doing an immense work. And I think a lot of the young people, um, I know I'm an example of this, they could say and look back at their fathers, um, some of us can say, and they can realize that that is a reason they are where they are today. And so happy Father's Day to the dads. So today is a great day for you. All right. Well, as we turn to our passage in Ecclesiastes, I want to pray for us. And I want to invite you guys to pray with me because we come to a passage today in Ecclesiastes that I think is going to be very easy for all of us to resonate with. It's going to be very easy for all of us to see what Solomon is saying and be able to say, wow, that's me. There's been times in my life where that's been me. And so what I want to pray for us and what I invite you to pray with me is that God would prepare our minds and our hearts to hear from him this morning through his word, that he would prepare our minds and our hearts and open us to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our hearts and challenge us and encourage us through his word. So let me pray that for us. I invite you to pray that with me for yourselves. Pray that with me for the people beside you and for your families. So let me pray and then we'll jump into the word. Well, Father God, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we get to come here this morning and open up the very words of the sovereign God of the universe. And we get to consider and study and walk through your very words that you have for us. God, and I pray that you would prepare our hearts 
in our minds to hear from you this morning. Holy Spirit, that you would work in this room this morning, that you would work in our minds and our hearts and see and challenge us of the ways that we have chased things that are meaningless, but then remind us that you are our greater treasure, that there is a greater treasure to be had, and that is you. Father, encourage us, challenge us this morning. Speak through me, Father. Holy Spirit, speak through me. I have nothing good to say in of myself, but Holy Spirit, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you have to say, so speak through me. Amen. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Like Kristen read, we're going to be in verses 10 through 20. And I want to start this way. I want to start actually with a story. Um, and this is a story about a painting. And before I get into this, don't hear that and be like, Topher is really into art, apparently, and really into paintings. I'm not. Um, and, but I came across this as I was studying and preparing for this morning, and I thought it was compelling. And I thought it did a really good job of illustrating exactly where we're heading this morning. And a really good job of illustrating exactly what Solomon is saying. So I've got a picture of this painting. Um, go ahead and throw it up there. This is called The Money Lender and His Wife. This is a Renaissance-era painting that was done by a man named Quentin Masseys. And the reason I wanted to show this and the reason I want to start this way is Quentin Masseys painted this painting to illustrate a serious point that he had began to notice in his own life and in the life of the people around him. And it was to create this tension that every single one of us ha lives in every single day. And it's the tension of this, that every single one of us have a choice that we make every single day of our lives. And it's to choose to find our satisfaction and enjoyment in God or to be distracted and pulled to find our enjoyment and satisfaction in the things of this world, like our money and our wealth, and our possessions. So look at this painting with me. There is a man and a woman, and this man, he's a money lender, and they're sitting in their home, and he's simply just counting his money. He's got his scale, he's got his coins, and he's counting it. And in the moment, he's got a coin in his hand, and he's just contemplating it. He's just looking at it. He's probably considering its wealth and its value. Um, he's totally into it. He's totally focused on that thing. And then look at his wife. And his wife is sitting there, and she has this book in front of her. And what the painter meant for this book to represent was a spiritual book. It's supposed to be either a Bible or just a book of spiritual exercises. But the picture that he was trying to paint is that this woman is sitting there, and she's simply just trying to do her devotions. She's just doing her quiet time, almost. But as she turns the page of this book, what I want you to notice is where her gaze is set. Because it's not on the book, is it? No, instead, her gaze is set on her husband. And more, more specifically, her gaze is set on the coin that the husband is holding. And the picture that the painter wanted to paint is that this is the exact tension and struggle that we all sit in as broken humans. That how easily and distracted we can get from the things of this world that can pull us away from true worship of God and true devotion to God. The artist saw this struggle, um, and he wanted to paint this to make that point. And the reality is Solomon understood this struggle too. And that's why in our passage this morning, we seem to see that Solomon wants to make an argument for why ultimately all of that is meaningless. For why ultimately living our lives, striving and toiling to try and find enjoyment and satisfaction in our money and our wealth and our possessions is ultimately vanity. It's ultimately meaningless. And so as we jump in 
to this passage, he's gonna provide us five reasons for why that's the case. Five reasons for why a chase of this and a pursuit of this and a giving almost of our lives to this is ultimately meaningless. So I encourage you to follow along with me as we read. We're gonna start in verse 10. Solomon says this, he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This first reason Solomon gives for why this pursuit is, is vanity is because ultimately it will never be enough for us. You guys see that? He says that those who love money will never be actually satisfied with it no matter how much they gain. It will never be enough for us. I was reading and I found this quote, came upon this quote, John D. Rockefeller. I think we all, maybe you don't recognize that name, but I would say most of us do. He's one of the titans of industry back in the early 1900s and was considered one of the wealthiest men in the world at the time. And even I found, this is just unfathomable. I can't even imagine that this number is real. But I found that where his net worth in the value of today's money, listen to this, would be about $340 billion. I mean, I, I don't even think that's a real number. Um, but $340 billion is what he would have been worth in today's money. And Rockefeller, he was once asked in an interview by this reporter this question. The reporter said this, which of your millions that you've made is your favorite? And the reporter was just simply trying to get him to answer, like, which one of your ventures, which one of your business plans, like, what thing that you've done has made you the most money? Which one of that has been your favorite? And Rockefeller, and we scoff when we hear this answer, um, but it profoundly illustrates Solomon's point here in verse 10. He simply said, the next one. The next one. And yet we scoff and we're like, how could he say that? And it's like, if I was in his shoes, like I would have a clear answer for that. I wouldn't be saying the next one. Yet what, so what Rockefeller illustrates with that answer and what Solomon, to point Solomon's make, is the problem that each one of us deal with in our sin. It's that it's not the amount that matters is, what so is not what Solomon is saying, but it's actually the desires of our heart. Because just like Rockefeller, that he communicates in that point, is that when we try to put the desires of our heart in the things that this world can give us, whether it be money, whether it be a bigger house, whether it be a, that job that you desperately, that promotion you desperately want because it comes with that raise, that nicer car, um, whatever it is, we fill in the blanks with whatever it is, that degree that we pursue because of the promise of that high-paying job, Solomon is telling us that ultimately it's never gonna satisfy us because it's never gonna actually be enough. It's never going to be enough. And the reality is, the point why it's never going to be enough is because it was never intended to be, church. It was never intended to be enough for us. It was never designed and it wasn't made to be our object of worship because this is our greatest problem in our sin. As we take our gaze and we take our focus off of God, who is intended to be the true object of our worship, and we've set it on the things of the world, just like the woman in the painting. And it almost becomes a no-brainer because we then realize that, of course, this thing is never going to satisfy me because it was never intended to in the first place. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he observed the people of Rome and he saw this and it led him to write this. This is Romans 1, 24 through 25. Just listen, it won't be on the screen. 
He says this, says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and the diso- to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And listen to this, this is the key phrase, and worshiped and served the creature. In other words, you could say the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Paul saw the people of Rome and he realized that their problem was is that they had put their worship in the thing that, in the creation, in our money, in our possessions, and they had turned it away from God and it never satisfies and it never truly fulfills us. This is the point that Solomon makes that a pursuit of this satisfaction and joy in the things that this world can give us, it's meaningless because church, it'll never be enough for us. It'll never truly satisfy us. He continues in verse 11. He says, not only will it never be enough for you, but there will always be things and people who are trying to take it from you and consuming it. Listen, look at verse 11. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Solomon continues by giving the second reason that not only will we never be able to have enough of it, but we will always be confronted with the fact that there are things and people that are going to consume it, that are going to take it from us. And I feel like we feel this all the time, right? You feel this every payday when you get depressed, when you see the amount of money that's being kept by your taxes and by the government, right? Or we see, or you feel this every time you have to pay the bills, right? And you're paying that mortgage and you're paying that power bill and you're paying that credit card bill. And it seems like you're just watching the money leave. It's being consumed. It's being taken. And we can feel that, even those of us that aren't parents. But parents, you guys feel this on an even deeper level because you're confronted with this every day, right? Because you realize there are people in your homes that look to you for their survival, right? And you realize that as they get older, they seem to be requiring more and more money, right? I was, um, last weekend, I was back in... Tennessee um, for a friend's wedding and a really good friend. I'm really close to his entire family. And I was talking to his mom and his mom was telling me about how their youngest daughter has just started cheerleading for the first time. She's middle school, first year cheerleading. And she was telling me about all the things that they were having to buy for her to just be able to cheerlead. And so she was telling me about the uniforms and the like practice gear, like just the simple shorts and t-shirts and the ability to go to cheer camp in the summer and all these things. And she was telling me about all these things. And then she told me the amount that it was all costing. And I became just, my, I was like shook by the like triple digit number that she told me. And I'm like, how did you even afford that? And she just was like, yeah, that's just it. Like, that's just the thing. Um, and, but parents, you're like, I feel that. I live that. I'm maybe living in those kind of seasons right now. Parents, you might feel like, especially if you're a parent of a teenage boy, you feel like every time you walk into your pantry, it's not stocked anymore. And you realize, like, I just went to the grocery store yesterday. How is this already, like, where'd all our food go? But it's this point that Solomon is making that no matter how much we try to get, no matter how much we try to gain, there is always going to be those who are going to eat our goods, maybe literally, but more, more likely figuratively. There'll always be those who consume it. There'll always be things that are gonna require and take it from us. And so Solomon says, this is meaningless. This is vanity. 
It's meaningless to spend our entire life striving and toiling after these things and trying to gain them. And ultimately, this leads us to live miserable lives. We'll see Solomon say here in a second. But it also leads and only produces worry and anxiety. And that's the next point Solomon wants to make. Verse 12, he says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And Solomon paints this picture by giving this illustration of this common worker, this laborer, who is simply just working, working hard to get what they know they need to survive. They're content with where they're at, and so they work hard to get what they are yet to survive. And Solomon says their sleep is sweet. Why? Because they're not living lives that produce worry and anxiety by striving after more. They sleep well because they're, whether they eat little or much, because they're content. They're content with what God has given them, and they're not living to try and gain more. But he says, but contrast that with the rich man or the person who is living their life striving for more, and they're hungry, and he says their full stomachs, or in other words, their abundance that they already have, can't let them sleep because they're constantly thinking about what they can get. What more can they get? What more can they gain? I think this is such an interesting point because I think Solomon's making the point also that not only is our pursuit of those things, not only will it damage us spiritually, but he's even saying it's gonna damage you physically because it's gonna produce worry and anxiety and it's gonna cause you not to be able to sleep in some cases. And so Solomon, he tells us, not only will you never have enough of it, so don't pursue it. People are gonna constantly try to take it from you and there's gonna be people who consume it. You're gonna just be worried and anxious all the time and you're not gonna be able to sleep. But he continues by giving two more and he does so by providing a story and providing a case study of this man. So turn to me, look at verse 13. He says this, he calls this a grievous evil. He says, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. And, sorry, riches were kept by their owner for his hurt. Here's what I found. Sorry, Siri. (laughs) Siri decided she wants to help us this morning, which I don't think is a good idea. Maybe we're heading there, though, with AI. And Anyway, um, where were we? Verse 14, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Solomon tells us this story of this man. He's a wealthy man, but it seems that he's living this life of greediness, of selfishness, of hoarding his riches. They were kept by him to his hurt. And what we see in this man is that he desired so much to have more. He, tried to, he went and tried to get more, but he ended up losing all of it. Verse 14, those riches were lost in a bad venture. And Solomon's making two points here. And the first point is that a pursuit of this stuff is meaningless because of how easily we can have it and how easily you could lose it. Think about this man. He had it and he was wealthy and he was rich, but this one venture, whatever it is, he loses all of it. Had it one day, loses it the next. And Solomon says, That's, it's meaningless because that can happen to any of us. But another point that I think Solomon is making here is not only can you easily lose it, but it's ultimately going to hurt you by doing this. Notice he says, to his hurt. 
But then he continues and he gives another reason. Because not only is it going to hurt you, but he also is going to hurt others. And it's going to hurt even the ones that matter the most to you. Because notice what he says. He says it gets worse. He says, and he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. In other words, he lost everything he had, and now he had nothing to be able to give to his kids, be able to give to his son. And Solomon's saying, when we pursue these things and try to find our satisfaction and our joy in them, not only are they going to hurt us, and this is true really for all of our sin, is not only does it affect us, but it affects others. And it's going to hurt others, even though, even when we think it won't. So Solomon says, this is meaningless because you can easily have it and then easily lose it. And you will hurt yourself and you will hurt others when you try to live this way. But he keeps going at this story of this man and gives this last point. He says this, and it's this point that we've already seen here in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's the point that ultimately we're nobody, all of us are going to lose all of it eventually. So not only is it possible for you to lose it in this life through whatever way, but ultimately every single one of us is going to lose it all anyway. Because notice what he says in verse 15. He says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Solomon's making this point, the last point of why this is all meaningless for us to pursue is because you're ultimately not going to be able to take it with you. The morality rate of, the mortality rate of humanity is still zero or 100%. Like we're all going to end up dying one day. And he says, just as you came into the world with nothing, you're going to end up leaving the world with nothing. We're not going to be able to take it with us. And that idea leads Solomon to confront us with this question. Notice at the end of verse 16, he says, what gain is there to him who at the end of the day is just toiling after things that are the wind that are going to end up going away just as easily as the wind comes and goes? I was reading this week and one commentary brought up Steve Jobs. And so we all know who Steve Jobs is, like Siri, like is his, one of his greatest contributions to our society. Um, we're like, most of us are like either holding in our hands or having our pockets some of his greatest contributions to our culture and to our society. And they were talking about Steve Jobs. And when we think of Steve Jobs, we could definitely say that's a man who toiled and really gave his life to, to gain as much as he possibly could. We could say that. I think that would be fair to say. He strived after much, and he, he succeeded. Because they were talking about when he died in 2011, his net worth was valued at about $12.5 billion. That was his worth. Everything that he had strived for, everything that he had worked for, led him to be able to have this abundance of riches. Yet, church, the reality is, and this is the point, is that the moment he died, just like every single one of us, his net worth instantly became zero, right? Because he no longer, that $12.5 billion that he was worth no longer meant anything to him because he wasn't able to take any of it with him. And that reality is the same for us. And so while we might never get to a VAT net worth of $12.5 billion, but if you do, 
like, let me remind you of the ways you can give here at Prov Road. Um, and I hope that, you know, maybe, maybe God will bless some of y'all in this room. And while we'll never be able, most likely, to get to that point, but we will all get to a point where we have much. And it might not be much in our eyes, but in the reality of the world, we have much. And the point Psalm is making is that for us to live our lives, to strive to gain more of that, it's meaningless and vanity because ultimately you're going to lose all of it anyway. The moment you die, you lose it all, and you're not able to take it with you. And so Solomon concludes this story of this man with this really sad verse, verse 17. And it's in a way he's telling us, okay, so if we do want to live our lives this way, here's where it's going to lead you. Verse 17, he says, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. And so Solomon's saying, if that's the way of life you want to live, here's where it's going to lead you. It's going to lead you to a miserable life. It's going to lead you to a life of sickness and anger and anxiety, vexation. And that's going to be the result when we live our lives in pursuit of gaining what more in this world has to offer, it doesn't lead us to contentment or joy or even rest. No, it leads us to misery. And it leads us to a miserable life of pursuing this vanity. And so we come to the end of verse 17 and we're like, well, that's like really depressing, Solomon. And we're like, it bears the question, and this is what I was thinking of as I read this, it's like, there's gotta be a better way for us to live right? And luckily, Scripture believes that there is, and Scripture tells us that there is, and even Solomon continues by telling us what there is. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 18, Paul says this as he writes to um, Timothy. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes. Here's Here's the key. So here's the key. What's the better way to live? Paul tells us here, he says, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What's the result of people who live like this? I love this, verse 18. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works. So not necessarily rich in wealth, but to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, that which is truly life. Here's how Solomon says in the rest of our passage, starting in verse 18, he says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Solomon answers this question for us. What's the better way for us to live? If that's not it, he provides us with this God-centered, balanced view of how we are to view the things we own. And he tells us the better way to live is to see that everything that we have, like I said in our welcome, is ultimately a gift from God. That ultimately all of it is a gift. And ultimately that God in his divine sovereignty and providence has given you exactly what he intended to give you. 
He didn't mess up when he gives us what he gives us. He gives us exactly what he intends to give us and exactly what he knows that we need. And Solomon says the key is then to see that and to see them as gifts. And when we do that, it leads us to live a life of contentment. And it leads us to live a life of joy because no longer do we see those things as the, the source of our satisfaction and our joy. And so it's important to note, like, Solomon's not saying, like, go sell all your stuff and that's the key. No, he's saying those things are good because God gives them to us. They're gifts from God. But he says, but when we put the object of our worship on them and trying to gain more of them, that's when we run into a problem. And so he's saying, put your intention on God, find joy and contentment in the things that God has given you and see them as gifts. And Solomon calls us when we do that and we rest in a contentment with what God has given us, whether it's much, whether it's little, he says that's a, the gift of God. Yet, church, as we read this, um, I can't help but see that this, is e- this way of life is even uncom- incomplete. Because the reality is we sit here today with a greater advantage over Solomon. Because we sit here today on this side of the cross and see that yes, God has given us good things. And yes, God has given us the ability to enjoy the good gifts from him, but ultimately, it's not the greatest gift he's given us, right? And we sit here today and we worship God and we can sit here today as Jesus followers because of the greater gift that he's given us. Because not only did he give us power to enjoy these good gifts from him, but he gave us the ability and the way for us to enjoy him and to have communion with him because that's the ultimate gift. And he did that through Jesus. He did that through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And so the reality is the person who finds true satisfaction and enjoyment, church, is not the person who just finds contentment and joy in the things of this world. Because reality is even an unbeliever can do that. Even an unbeliever can find joy and contentment in the things of this world to a degree. But the reality is the true person who finds true enjoyment, true satisfaction in this life is the one who sees that they have a greater treasure. And it doesn't really matter the things that God gives us because our gaze is set on a greater treasure, church. And that is Jesus who came and gave his life and went to the cross and died and rose again so that you and I could have communion with the triune God and enjoy him forever. That is what's truly valuable and precious in this life. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus gives in Matthew. We remember this, the parable of the hidden treasure. And this picture of this man who finds a treasure that's so valuable, that's so precious in this field, that what's it lead the man to do? It leads the man to go and sell everything he has just so he could obtain that field because of the treasure he knew that was in it. And we think about that and we're like, so this man who went and sold all the good gifts that God had given him, he goes and sells all of them. Why? Because he saw the treasure that is in that field as more valuable, as more precious than anything this world had to offer him. And Jesus says, this is the kingdom. That treasure is the kingdom. That treasure is our current and our future reality of being able to enjoy communion with Jesus. And the picture that Jesus is telling us is that that is where our treasure is. He is where our true enjoyment is. I wanna take us back to that painting as we get ready to wrap up. 
I want to take us back to that painting because it seems that the artist not only understood the struggle and the problem, but he also understood the true solution because there's a detail in this painting that we miss when we first just look at it. So I have a zoomed in photo of this painting too. And you notice this mirror. And this painter puts this mirror in here and it's a mirror that gives us insight into the scene that's happening outside the frame. And I don't know if you, hopefully you can see that pretty close. If not, I encourage you to go home, like look at it because it's really just really cool and really awesome. But it's a window. It's a window whose window frame has been intentionally darkened to form a cross. And there's a man in this photo and the man is, has his arm, we can't see it that well, but he has his arm reached out towards that window frame, almost in this idea of striving, toiling, reaching out and clenching to that window seal in the form of a cross. And what art historians have discovered through studying this painting is that that is actually supposed to be a self-portrait of the painter. And it's this picture that the painter invites us to to see that in this picture of a man and a woman who has allowed their gaze to be distracted by the things of this world and is allowing their lives to be pursued in those instead of a true worship of God, the painter invites us to see what Solomon invites us to see is that there is a greater solution. And that solution is to clench and reach out to our greater treasure and set our gaze on him. That he is our true treasure. That he is the true thing that's worth our striving and our toiling and our pursuing. We are to set our gaze on the cross and see Jesus as that true source of joy and satisfaction, church. And so we can look at this passage and we can say with Solomon, Solomon's right. Like this is meaningless. These, to pursue the things of the world and to pursue gaining the things of the world is ultimately meaningless. But what Solomon didn't realize that we set out the advantage here today is that there is a treasure that is worth a pursuit, that there is, that is worth the toil and the striving, and that is Jesus. And so here's how I want to close. I want to close with a question. Um, and I want to close with this. The question is simply this, where is your treasure today? Where is your treasure being found today? Maybe you're in this room and you come in this place this morning and you think about this and you look at your life and you say, you know what, I have been spending my entire life striving and toiling after trying to gain as much as I can from this world and trying to find satisfaction in it and trying to find my treasure in the things this world has to offer me. And you realize that that was never going to satisfy you and it doesn't satisfy you. And so maybe you need to see that there is a greater treasure. And maybe your response this morning is to see that is to confess and believe in Jesus for the first time. Maybe it's to put saving faith in him as your treasure. And let me just say, if that is you this morning, don't leave this room without talking to somebody about that. Don't leave this room by going and grabbing me, Jeremy, another elder in the room and talking about what God is stirring up in your heart. We wanna help you and walk with you through that. So maybe that's you, but maybe you're in this room and you say, I am a Jesus follower. I do see Jesus as my great treasure, yet there's times where my, I get distracted by the woman, like the woman does. And so the question is, where, what is that fill-in-the-blank thing? What is that treasure that you find yourself distracted by? And what are steps that you need to take to, to begin um, seeing Jesus as your truer treasure, to reset your gaze back 
on him. Church, let us be a people, like I said, who can stand with Solomon and who could say yes. Who can say yes, that is meaningless. The pursuit of wealth and possessions and things of this world is meaningless. And let us be a people who have our gaze set so much on him that it doesn't matter what we gain from this world. And let us be a church, I was thinking about this, that other people in our city and our world can see that of us. That the way we live our lives is the way of a person who's content with what they have because of God's given it, but are living for something greater. And let that lead us to being able to tell others about this great treasure that we have. Church, let us be that this morning. Let me pray that for us. I invite you to pray that with me.